Welcome to Prompted by Nature, a weekly podcast that explores the connection between nature and creativity through storytelling. Each week, we'll dive into heartfelt conversations with the humans working in and with nature to support our planet and the creatures, including us, that inhabit it. Each conversation is punctuated by a meditation and writing prompt created by me, Helen, a meditation teacher, writer and outdoor creativity guide to help you to explore the issues and topics covered in a more meaningful and creative way. Because when we allow ourselves time and space to deeply listen and connect, we bring ourselves closer to a place in which we can truly live prompted by nature. Hello lovely you, welcome to series 2 episode 12 of Prompted by Nature. How are you this week? So this week's episode is my final conversation episode of 2020, although next week the tables will be turned when my amazing friend Priya Shah will be interviewing me, which should be interesting as she'll be asking me the questions that I usually ask my guests. But on to this week's episode. Last week, I had the pleasure of speaking with the wonderful Lucy Groves of the Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust. Lucy is a conservation biologist working on a range of projects across Sussex and has an interest in animal behaviour, movement ecology and nature connection. Lucy joined Durrell's Wildlife Conservation Trust in 2019 as project officer for the White Stork Project, which is a multi-partner project aiming to restore the white stork to Britain after a 600-year absence. Based at the NEPRI Wilding Project in West Sussex, Lucy is responsible for coordinating partner organisations and release sites, post-release monitoring of the stalks, including movement data from GPS tracking and collation of site reports, as well as delivering public engagement using the emblematic white stalk to drive nature connection in local and wider communities. A self-confessed nature nerd, small mammal lover, thread painter, And mum to a little owl, she is happiest when outdoors searching for British wildlife. In this conversation, we discuss how she found her way into conservation biology, her experience of burnout and work-related mental health issues and how this led her to her work at NET, her connection to animals and fascination with animal behaviour, how she came to be involved with the White Stalk Project, what the White Stalk Project involves, the wonder of instinct in animals, how she stays inspired and motivated and how her experience of Lyme's disease forced her to reassess her priorities in times of exhaustion, her hope for the future and what her journey has taught her. I first found out about Lucy's work on BBC Springwatch when they showcased the White Stork project at NEP. I started following Lucy on social media and became absolutely fascinated by the journey of the storks and the work that Lucy and her team are doing. It was so lovely to hear more about the project and the wonderful things that we humans can do to help heal our planet and its wild inhabitants. You can find Lucy on Instagram and Twitter at Lucy in the Wild and read all about her work with the White Stork Project on www.whitestalkproject.org. And as always, I'm over on Instagram at prompted.by.nature and on the website www.promptedbynature.boat. 
www.nature-writing.co.uk where you can sign up to my weekly online nature writing sessions, book in for any of my 2021 in-person outdoor writing and creativity sessions and retreats and buy gift vouchers for the nature lover in your life. And if you enjoy the podcast, please do share with your communities by sharing on social media or in real life. And please pop a review and five stars in wherever you're listening if you can. Every little helps get these voices and conversations out there. And I'm just about to hit the 3000 listens mark, which I'm so excited about and I absolutely did not expect. Um, So yeah, every, like I say, everything helps. And thank you to those of you that already have and those of you that listen in, share, enjoy and give me such wonderful feedback. It makes it all worth it. Remember to stick around until the end of the episode when I'll give you a little insight into the meditation and writing prompt that follows. Happy listening and I'll speak to you after. I'm Lucy Groves and I am a conservation biologist and I am born and raised in West Sussex. Um, I'm currently the White Stork Project Officer for um, the White Stork Project and I work for Doral Wildlife Conservation Trust. And I have been working in conservation or with animals since I left school um, in various different forms. Um, But yeah, finally feel like I'm kind of in the right path now after a few twists and turns um, but yeah that's me cool and I would that kind of leads me nicely onto the question of how did you get into what you're doing specifically I mean we can talk a bit later about the stalks but just yeah. in terms of like working with the durrells and um yeah that sort of thing I'd love to know what your path was yeah it wasn't a straight path that's for sure um so when I was it, I wanted to be a vet nurse and did work experience at a vet surgery and decided it wasn't what I wanted to do um, but went to college and studied animal management and I went into working at a rescue centre and I worked there for going on 10 years actually it was a rescue centre that specialised in um, small mammals small animals and reptiles that was the main thing we had over 200 tortoises that we I looked after and, and stuff um, but then decided that I actually wanted to go to university. Um, so I went to university as a so-called mature student at 25. Um, and uh, yeah, I did an animal behaviour and welfare degree and wanted to become a zookeeper, basically. Wow. Um, whilst I was there, I had to do lots of different work experience and um, got involved in working with British wildlife. Uh, did quite a lot of ecological surveys with wildlife trusts um, here in Sussex and in Surrey mm-hmm. um, and started I did three weeks work experience at a place called the British Wildlife Centre so it specialised in British wildlife purely mm-hmm. and I stayed on as a summer keeper and then stayed on as a permanent keeper and I was there for about four and a half years and absolutely loved it loved working with all of the the animals the one-to-one with the animals was just incredible I got to do all sorts of amazing things like hand rear a little owl and stuff like that, which was fantastic. Um, but I also found it quite stressful. Um, a lot of people think it's all sitting, cuddling animals, but actually there's a lot of emotional side of it as well. If you, you know, you lose animals that you've worked with for a long time and it's all hours, you know, you don't get paid much. Mm-hmm. And it 
it was quite stressful um, and I ended up suffering really badly with mental health issues and really severe migraines. Oh, wow. um, I ended up being signed off for quite some time um, and just felt that actually, do you know what, I'm not that happy. Um, so I decided to leave, which was a really hard decision to make. It was almost like a, a massive bereavement, leaving all of these animals behind. Um, but I left with nothing to go to. <laughs> I just decided that was it. My health needs to come first. I'm quitting, which I did, and decided to become self-employed and go freelance with all the surveys and things like that. Wow. Luckily, whilst I was at the zoo, I did loads of outside work stuff. I did lots of volunteering and got my name out there, which was really useful for when I decided to leave. I ended up getting all sorts of little contracts for surveying at Gatwick Airport and cool. and then I ended up doing safaris at the net rewilding project in Suffolk. So I've been there for three years and that's how I got into the stalks basically. Um, they needed someone to help look after the stalks themselves um, so I fit the bill with the captive animal management side of things. They also wanted someone to do public engagement whilst I was at the zoo. We did, I did lots of talks and things like that so had that side um, and I've been volunteering with forest school so I've done quite a lot of things and some research projects as well so I kind of ticked all of the boxes that they needed for, for a project officer for the stalks and that's it that's how I ended up with Doral which is amazing. Wow I've heard so many... a long convoluted story but I mean <laughs> yeah. I mean I think uh, yeah I think uh, the most interesting people have long convoluted stories <laughs> because that's, yeah. you know, that's how we find our way into things. Is sometimes it's not like, well, quite often it's not linear, is it? It's like this sort of yeah. detail. Yeah. Like and you learn so much on the way, I think. Yeah. As well. You know, I, I've got so much experience in so many different areas of the industry because mm. of all of the different things that I've done. Um, and I wouldn't have got a job with Doral if it hadn't have been for everything that I've done leading up to it. So, and it's odd because, you know, when I was at university studying to be a zookeeper, Doral was like way up there. I was like, I'd never be able to work at Doral. That's just crazy. And now here I am. So, yeah, it's all kind of fallen into place. And I think quite often one thing... Um... One thing, one thing naturally leads to another. And when you get to that point, like you said, like Daryl was like up there and you know, I'd never worked for them. But when you look back, it's almost like these dominoes, not dominoes, what, what do they call it? Like soldiers in a row or whatever, you know, ducks in a row. <laughs> like it's almost like that was kind of there already. And you were just, yeah. the pieces were just slotting yeah. as you went. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I'm, I'm. It's cheesy, but I'm a whole believer in you know everything happens for a reason. Yeah, and I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't have made the choices that I've made at the time. But yeah, definitely. So, before we kind of get on and talk about the storks and your kind of specific work, because I'm absolutely fascinated by that. Um, tell, I would really love to hear about your own connection to nature and perhaps even your first memory of of nature and possibly specific animals I don't know but yeah just I'd love to hear more about that well I mean I've always been quite connected with nature but not necessarily aware of it I don't think um I've always been really interested in animals and really lucky I grew up 
you know, right by the sea in Little Hampton, but also my grandparents lived sort of in just on the downs, so <laughs> I had you know woodland to run around, and my dad's like proper countryside, so I've got kind of both sides, and I did, we just we just always spent time outdoors. Um, I don't remember being indoors an awful lot as a child. Um, you know, doing all sorts in the garden and getting hands dirty and things like that. I don't know about my first memory of, of being with nature because I think it was just such a big part of growing up, really. Um, but yeah, and just always wanted to work with animals and be outside, quite an outdoorsy person. Mm. Um, being stuck indoors is not not my ideal situation. Um, but yeah, just. And I just love walking in, I mean, woodland in particular, there's just something about being in the woods, the smells, mm. the sounds, the lights, the colours, there's just something really, really calming about it. And, and, and along the beach as well, I just, anytime I had an issue or I was going through something stressful um, when I was younger, I'd, I'd go for a walk along the beach. Um, so yeah, there's just always been that connection to getting out if I needed to get away from stuff. And what about the animals aspect to it? Because um, I, when you know, there there are some people that like I like animals and I want to look after animals, but I, I I've never felt particularly drawn to actually working with them. What was it that that, or what is it that you feel has connected you with animals in a way that you've just you know you've like you said you've always um, been. Uh, drawn to looking after animals and I don't know I think maybe it's but from the kind of the, the zookeeping side and actually wanting to care for them it's that kind of the nurturing side I think I don't class myself as a very maternal person um but with with animals there is something you know I just just always wanted to look after them and I think you know when I was little I wanted to be a vet nurse I wanted to make them better I wanted to help um, so there's always kind of been that theme running through it and I don't quite know where that comes from but there is just something really lovely with having a proper connection with an animal whether it's walking down the road and you know locking eyes with a fox before it runs off or actually being you know in the sort of the captive setting if you like and looking after them and I mean yeah I did get to the point where I wanted to get out of that kind of the captive right. side of things um and spend more time with with wildlife actually in the wild um and i there's i've always really loved learning about their behavior and i think that's why the university course was so good and um why i'm so intrigued by like the movement ecology that i've been doing with the storks but also i've worked on projects with harvest mice um looking at how they move in the habitat and and surveying for them i've really liked that science kind of data side that kind of fits with part of my brain that's quite I like things organized <laughs> and I like to have sort of the data to sort and organize and then learn from that um yeah it's kind of all connected somewhere along the line I'm not mm. really sure where <laughs> I was just thinking as you were talking about that kind of the captive in the wild and and what do you see as being the kind of difference and how have you um yeah what have you kind of observed in because I'm always interested as to whether I don't know a lot about animals in terms of their behavior but 
from what you've seen in, in terms of how they behave in captive and wild and and um are there kind of stresses in captivity that they don't have in the wild or vice versa um yeah i mean there's there's it kind of works both ways so you know they obviously in captivity they don't have to worry about where to find food mm. you know if they're ill they get looked after mm-hmm. um they don't you know suffer from predation you know they're not you know they don't have predators around so they don't have those kind of stresses but then alternately they don't always have the um processes that they need to be able to behave naturally mm-hmm. you know 100 percent, and that you can't get that in captivity there's just no way but one of the things that i loved doing as a zookeeper was all the environmental enrichment making them work for stuff and you know trying to replicate things that they would do in the wild as much as possible so you know burying food for the foxes and um you know making things food difficult to get to or i think one of the things i did with the foxes was i, I buried a, a speaker um, which was playing mouse sounds to try and sort of get the foxes thinking about hunting or you know digging for food that kind of stuff yeah. um, and that was one of the things I always really loved to do um, and there is just something really lovely about seeing them producing as natural a behaviour as possible and it's, it's something that every zookeeper will do their best to do because the welfare of the animals comes first mm-hmm. um, but yeah, there is something really special about actually seeing those behaviours in the wild with wild foxes or whatever animal you're looking at. So yeah, it is one of those things. No zookeeper really likes the fact that animals are in captivity, but there is a necessity to it mm. for education and conservation, you know, breeding programmes. It's got its place, definitely, if it's done right. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, so tell me about nep the stalks how that all kind of came about because i think i first heard about it were you on spring watch or they they did a uh, yeah. focus of it on there and that yeah was the so we were on spring watch yeah. um i had been in the job a week and bbc <laughs> spring watch turned up and i had to learn a lot about stalks really really quickly <laughs> um, it's kind of baptism by fire um sure. but yeah so but the stalk project well I mean, NEP has been going for years now and it's uh, what was an uh, intensive farm and it's been turned over for for rewilding. So it's turned over for nature. It's three and a half thousand acres Mm. um, and it's the most beautiful area to to be in. Um, I was lucky enough to live on the doorstep. So for seven years, it was my playground um, uh, and lucky enough to get to work there and be able to walk to work. Um, But yeah, so I did this. I did and do safaris so take out groups and show them about and um, show them all the species and things that we get out there talk about the processes of, of rewilding um, so they've introduced um, sort of proxy species for animals that would have been here um, a long time ago uh, so the longhorn cattle instead of um, the aurochs um, tamworth pigs instead of the wild boar um, exmoor ponies instead of the tarpan um, and they obviously have the deer species as well and they're in there grazing browsing creating lots of different um types of habitat and it's amazing the species that have, have come back the turtle doves and the nightingales um if if 
you want somewhere to go for the dawn chorus i highly <laughs> highly recommend nep it's the most beautiful spot for the dawn chorus in, in sort of may time um but yeah the stork project itself was kind of um spearheaded by charlie burrell who owns um nep parking estate and it began in 2016 and it's a partnership of private landowners and nature conservation charities so we've got quite a lot of partners that are involved and yeah started in 2016 um so we've got nep which is the core area for the project but then we've also got two satellite sites as well so we've got one in east sussex at wadhurst and we've got one in wintershaw in surrey as well and each of these three sites have got stalks at the site and the reintroduction is done over three separate phases to be able to re-establish a population of white storks in the southeast so we're using a model which was developed by a swedish project um, which has been successful so the first phase is you establish a static resident population um, and this is done by having storks in large open-topped enclosure and these are birds that came from poland that were injured in the wild and um, because of their injuries couldn't be released back into the wild so many of them or all of them can't fly um, so bless them they they're kind of are disabled storks um, they are um, but obviously you know I mean, they live about 30 odd years in captivity so otherwise it was going to be you know crowded in a zoo setting in Poland or you know in these six acre enclosures at, at our sites so they came over um, to us. We've got about 25 flightless um, birds at NEP at the moment, and about the same at Wadhurst, and just 10, I think, at, at Wintershaw at the moment. Mm -hmm. But they act for a like a magnet for any that might be passing over. So we get about 20 or 30 vagrants, visitors to the UK every year of, of the white storks. Um, but because of their strong breeding ecology, they will always return to the same spot to breed. Once they're gone, they might come and visit, but they don't stay to breed. Right. Um, so without a helping hand, they were never gonna be able to return properly to the UK. So yeah, act as a magnet uh, for any that pass over. Within just a couple of months of having them at net, we had two wild ones land in the pen. So that bit works, which is great. Um, and also they'll act as a static breeding population as well. So me and my volunteers build them uh, nests on the ground or on little platforms with ramps up to them so that they can get up to them um, and hopefully they will breed once they re reach sexual maturity and then their offspring will be able to free fly mm -hmm. fledge themselves. The second phase is to have a free flying resident population so these guys are what we call hefted so similar to sort of sheep in the lake district they know which fell is theirs they will always stay in the same spot the same with the, the storks. So these are flighted birds, but they are kept at the site in a large aviary uh, for two winters. And basically mm -hmm. that kind of gets rid of any urges to, to fly off anywhere. They may go off and explore a little bit, but they'll return to net or Wadhurst or whichever site they were hefted at. And these form our free flying sort of breeding population. Mm -hmm. um, and they are um, the ones that we had some chicks from this year, which was very, very exciting. Um, and then the third phase is to establish a migratory population. So what the Swedish project found was that actually by just having the static birds and the hefted birds, none of them are migrating. And the whole idea of establishing these populations is that they behave naturally. 
mm-hmm. and they weren't because they were just stuck in one spot mm. which means you know you've got to supplementary feed them over the winter because you know well in sweden anyway yeah. definitely no not enough food uh, whereas here in the uk they'll find food um but um yeah so they decided that actually they'd try releasing first year juveniles and that facilitates that breeding popula- the, the um migratory uh, mm-hmm. behavior um because they're not hefted onto a site they've got that urge to fly south for the winter so our partner for the breeding project uh, breeding program is Cotswolds wildlife park mm-hmm. and they're experts they've had stalks for many years and they've increased the breeding um pairs that they've got so their chicks come to net uh, once they're fully fledged and they spend just a couple of weeks with us getting used to the area and the other stalks and then we release them um, in sort of August time um, and yeah so we've done that last year and this year and we'll be going until 2023 so five years of, of these uh, juvenile releases and we've um, we've been GPS tagging some of these juveniles and we have now had we had one last year who flew all the way down to Morocco and we've had two this year that have made it to Morocco and we've got uh what is it we've got five we've got yeah so we've got five in France and Spain and two in Morocco one still here in the UK from from this year's tax bed so yeah fantastic to see be able to look at the data and track where they're going yeah which is really fascinating do you just look at them and go oh well done yeah yeah it's, it's like a proper it's yeah. so exciting when they go somewhere or do something exciting so yeah we had um, a group of them cross the channel all at the same time so six of the tagged birds crossed the channel and um yeah super exciting when they when they you know we're sending out emails to all the partners like they've done it <laughs> which is great yeah it's really exciting i get a little bit addicted after we've release the juveniles with the tags on to check in the data every day even on my days off I'm not on my phone like logging on the where they got to um yeah um yeah. and I was wondering and this isn't like a oh why is it important type question but I I genuinely would love to know the importance of storks because obviously you know having these species as they've always lived in where they've always lived but obviously for whatever reason they're not here anymore um actually i could ask you that is why aren't they here anymore and also why why is it important to have them here yeah so i mean no one really knows why they're not here anymore they were quite heavily persecuted we think um habitat change and stuff may have also had an issue they were hunted quite a lot as well apparently they're quite good eating um they used to appear in medieval banquets and things like that there's quite a lot of evidence of them um on the food item list for for those kind of things um so we're not really sure but like i said earlier once you've lost that breeding colony um and the area that they they nest in um that's it you've you've lost that um area for them Mm. and they've actually been reintroduced into eight other countries across europe where they were formerly um and a lot of those again with persecution um intensification of farming that kind of thing i mean they eat a lot of insects and earthworms so pesticide use and stuff like that would have had an impact over the years too obviously in more recent years 
But I mean, the importance of having the stalks back is, is a, it's a difficult one to answer, but it's something that we, we really believe in. And that is actually connecting people back with nature. So we kind of want to use the white stalk as an emblem for, you know, re reconnection with nature, but also habitat restoration as well. So, I mean, I've only got to look at the emails and the Twitter posts and the, you know, artwork and blog posts and photos that have come in from people and I record sightings um coming in from people that have spotted the birds with the, the rings on. Oh wow. And everybody is just so excited to see them. It's it's amazing and also only have to look at the increase of footfall at net after the news went out about the chicks of just how popular they are. People just absolutely love them. And if that gets people who are not interested in nature at all to come to NEP or to engage with the project, then we're doing something right. Um, it gets us engaged with them, talking about ecosystems and what the stalks eat and how we can improve it for the stalks, which would then improve it for the little brown jobs that you know nobody's that interested in you know oh I am I absolutely love all the little brown jobs um but you know having kind of like this figurehead and ambassador in the stalks um to sort of help get those conversations going um you know I also get emails from people that have gone oh this this was in our garden or this was on our roof I've had one of your stalks and you look at the photo and you're like it's a heron but that's awesome <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so and it just you know that you're getting people that don't know much about wildlife but they loved it enough to tell you that they've seen it and then you can get them talking about other things which is I think is really cool um it's been amazing to see the reaction from people definitely mm. I feel like there's something about the stalk as well in terms of the kind of um the symbolism of it and and you know because I, I, I don't know about you, but I remember growing up having never seen a stork, but, but there were all the stories about the stork is the one that brings the babies, you know, like, oh, how do, how are babies, how are babies born? Oh, the stork brings them, you know, and there's all these stories around it. There is this real, um, it does strike the imagination a lot, I think. Yeah, yeah it does. And it's, you know, even though they've not been here for you know, 600 odd years, you know, they are still very much part of our culture they're kind of mm -hmm. ingrained you don't even have to have ever seen a stork to know what a stork is if that makes sense it's yeah. kind of already there and those that folklore and stuff goes back years and years and years and years i mean they were in aesop's fables and all of that kind of stuff and you know the the one of the uh, theories behind why it's one of our folklores of the storks bringing the babies is that couples would wed during the summer solstice and then you know our storks would be around at that point but then they'd vanish for the winter and they'd return about nine months later when quite a lot of babies would be turning up as well so it kind of goes with our cycle and you know when we were very much in tune with nature um so it kind of is really ingrained in us even though they've not been here for a long time like you say i think it really does spark that imagination mm. and it's such a big charismatic easily identifiable bird that um and if you see them flying there's just you know there's one thing watching them stalk through some grass but you know if you 
see a group or even one of them just soaring on a thermal it's just absolutely amazing wow and i was just thinking of um when you're talking about when you know a time when we were more kind of in tune with nature and people you know the hand fastings at summer solstice yeah. and then was talking about it kind of made me think about you know this concept of rewilding and i know isabella tree has been kind of uh, maybe not at the forefront of that but you know her book yeah. um almost like brought that into a common conversation of people starting this this concept of rewilding coming up a lot more yeah. um and kind of it feels like the stalk is very much a part of that and nep in general um and what they're doing there yeah yeah um, it's it's all interconnected and i think one of the things with izzy's book is that it has like you say it's brought it to the for forefront and you know nep have been doing it for yeah. 20 years or so now and you know it is now one of those words everybody knows of it especially in this industry it's got lots of different meanings it can mean different things for different people and there's lots of different methods of rewilding um so it's not kind of a one term fits everything um but it really has come to the forefront and it's getting people talking which is what izzy and charlie really wanted and the fact that the stalks have now slotted into that as well and have taken that message further because I mean we've got stalks that are all out they're dotted all over the country at the moment I've got a couple in East Sussex I've got one down in Devon I've got one up in Yorkshire <laughs> so wow. they're kind of all over the place at yeah. the moment as well as at NEP and all of the release sites as well so you know I get sightings coming in from all over the country and in Europe as well so I get sightings from France and Spain too and um, it's just you know the idea that these birds because migratory birds cover such distances they can connect so many different communities because they you know they're traveling past all of them and it kind of brings us all together mm. in some way you know we see the same bird from you know our shores all the way over to morocco it's mm -hmm. amazing yeah will there be any other um birds or anything else that they're thinking of reintroducing or any projects kind of underway I'm just asking just because I'm purely interested <laughs> is it there's no other bird species at the moment that that we in particular are thinking of or, or net at the moment um they are um going to be reintroducing beavers um supposed yes. to happen this year but um I think it's been waylaid because of um all of the lockdowns and covid but yeah. hopefully next year we will we'll have the beavers at net which will be absolutely awesome yeah. um yeah just it's it's odd because my my speciality is actually mammals and small mammals oh, so birds has been a new thing for me yeah. which is it's been really really exciting to learn about um all the birds and the behavior new behaviors and stuff but yeah having beavers back in in Sussex it's just epic <laughs> that would be amazing because we i live down in brighton so we're not that far away and i keep saying to, i've said to the kids so many times we're going to go to net we're going to go to net we haven't managed it yet yeah. but i spoke yeah. to um nina constable who you know has been making yeah. the documentaries and, and talking to her about the beavers is just and then seeing you know the beaver trust recently did um, yeah the video beavers, yeah, without, beavers without borders yeah that was yeah. I just find the whole such a beautiful film. Oh, it's just incredible! It really was beautiful. But I just find the whole thing this, you know, reintroduction of these species that 
were here for such a long time and then for whatever reason aren't it's just so inspiring about what um with all of the destruction that's in the world what humans can really do because yeah. it's because of humans monitoring and then well it's because of humans they're not here but then it also it's because of humans that they're back and that they've yeah. been able to to thrive like the work that you do and what they're doing down in Cornwall and all over the country yeah. and yeah it's just so inspiring like hearing about the possibility of reintroducing wolves up in Scotland I was reading about that um yeah that I think it just opens up so many possibilities and um yeah it does it really does it's amazing what humans can do when they put their mind to it um <laughs> yeah yeah just you know we can undo quite a lot of the stuff that we've done if only we would pay attention and, and do it but yeah seeing all the work that the beaver trust is doing down in cornwall and you know the the thought of having beavers here in sussex you know and i went down and saw the the, the devon beaver project um in the lead up to nep having them um a group of us safari guides went down and we met met the guys down there and got to walk around the beaver enclosure and um in my little cupboard behind me i've got some beaver chips some bits of wood that a beaver <laughs> chewed out of the tree in my little cupboard of curiosities behind me um but yeah just the habitat that they create is is just phenomenal um and the wildlife that is attracted to that you know they are proper keystone um species you know they they are engineers of the waterways and they make it better um so yeah it'd be absolutely amazing once they're yeah. back it's so cool to see what they do yeah so exciting um so just kind of coming back to you for a bit i was thinking about because obviously the podcast is about the link between nature creativity and that sort of thing and i was thinking from your kind of perspective the part that your own creativity plays in what you do yeah so i mean kind of outside of work i um i've always been quite craft I, I like crafting i do quite a lot of crafting um it's kind of my proper chill out time um and i embroider actually and oh, wow. um so i and i do that of wildlife um just oh. kind of one of my my links um which which i do um and it's yeah i can think of absolutely nothing else whilst i'm doing it which is, is amazing it's the only thing i found actually where i can i can properly switch off and and um yeah forget about everything else and if i can do it out in the garden in the sunshine then even better um but i mean i do a little bit of writing not as much as i'd like i used to really love writing um but one, you know, I do lots of news updates and stories for the volunteers and newsletters and that kind of all ties in as well, quite like storytelling. So mm. Kind of link that in as well where I can. Mm. Yeah, I think there's just so much in nature that you can, you know, even just going for a walk, you can it's just tie in with your creativity um even if you don't feel like you're very creative there's mm. always something you know sparking in your brain i think yeah and i feel like working in nature in general is creative because you're working with like creativity itself <laughs> like you're creating yeah. something you know for example what you're doing at nep and what nep is doing in general is creating something that wasn't there before yeah you no know? yeah 
opening up this space and seeing what can be created. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the joys of it, actually, is that feeling like you don't have to be in control and you can just step back and let it happen and watch what happens and, you know, learn from nature. Um, you know, the things that we've learned about species we thought we knew, um, you know, nightingales as woodland birds, you know, and if you were going to go and um, try and create habitat for a nightingale, you'd probably go and plant hazel coppice. But actually, at NEP, they love the scrubbing out hedgerows and they love the, the, thick, the bramble thickets and things wow. like that. And, you know, that, that's the reason they've got so many nightingales at NEP is because of all the scrub and they don't cut the hedgerows and, um, you know, kind of as nature intended, really. Yeah. So yeah, learning from nature is, is one of the key things. If you can stop and you can listen. Then, yeah. And also I think, I, I'm not a scientific person really, but it feels like there can be a lot of control in the kind of sciences and how much of a part of what you do is planning and how much is it of just not winging it, but do you know what I mean? Just kind of, let's just see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, quite a lot of it, isn't it? <laughs> um, well, I think, I mean, when you're, you're dealing with animal behaviour, animal behavior, there's only so much, in a wild setting, there's only so much you can control anyway. You can control the way that you gather the data, but you can't control what the animals do. They do their own thing. So, you know, planning the, you know, the, the releases and um, the tagging and everything has to be done to the letter, following licenses, following welfare, regulate, you know, everything has to be done um, in a very organised way. But mm. once that door is open and those birds are out, that's it. It's sitting back and just watching what they do. Um, and the only time we intervene is if there is a real welfare issue um, and we haven't had to yet. Mm. Um, you know, we get phone calls from people saying, I've got a stork in my garden and it's you know, all in the field next door and it's been there for three weeks should I try and catch it or should I feed it? And the answer is always, no, we need to let nature take its course. Whatever, mm. you know, unless it is seriously injured and you reckon that you can catch it and get it to a wildlife rescue to be treated, then fine. But once that door is open and they're out, they are classified as a wild bird. Mm. So, you know, it, it can be difficult sometimes to sort of make a decision whether you step back and you, you watch or whether you intervene. But um, as much as possible, we like to sit back and wait and see what happens and let them behave how they're supposed to behave. And then we can learn from, from that, um, you know, what these birds are doing. Um, they are so adaptable that their behaviours are changing all the time anyway. They, um, you know, there's groups of them, population of them in Portugal that now live on landfill sites all year round. They don't migrate anymore wow. because the landfill sites have got so much yeah. organic matter on. Yeah. You know, they're basically a big seagull. <laughs> they are just, acting, you know, they're out there with lots of different gull species on these landfill sites. And they're actually breeding on those sites now yeah. and not migrating at all. In the next few years, the legislation's changing and there's not going to be any organic matter on those landfill sites. So their behaviour is going to change again, um, mm. whether it will return to their old migration patterns or what, we don't know. And that's one of the exciting things with the UK stalks is 
that migratory route from the UK has not existed for hundreds of years. Wow. Which route do they take? You know, there's two distinct routes that storks take. They take an eastern route or a western route, and it splits down the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. So typically, the, the British ones, the UK storks, should go down the, the western route. But our storks are of Polish bloodline. So yeah. is it genetic? Do they, will they go east? instead of west so there's so much to learn and there's so much to study just by sitting back and, and watching what they do it's just incredible it's it it this is not the same and i almost feel bad saying it so we have just taken in a hedgehog to overwinter. I saw. <laughs> I listened to your other podcast so i heard about your hedgehog that's really <laughs> exciting <laughs> she's a little love and I worry about her because she is essentially in like captivity and, but she was really poorly. And if it hadn't have been for, uh, she's called Carol who runs our local hedgehog group. I mean, she absolutely would have died because she's an autumn juvenile. Yeah. You know, it's hard because you can't release them because they're too small to hibernate. They won't survive. There's no food. Yeah. So you have to keep them in. Um, but even with her being in her little zoo zone, and it's interesting what you said about trying to get them to, doing things for them that will mimic what happened out in, in um, it, you know, out in the wild. Cause I actually said to Carol yesterday, I want to start, I want to make a big pen for her that she can just be in yeah. overnight with some things to do. Um, but even just observing her, she's, uh, so Carol had said to me, she doesn't touch the crunchy things. She just will eat the, the, like the cat food stuff. Yeah. And, I said to her the other day, she eats everything and she's, I can see she wants, she's almost like wanting more. And she said, oh, yeah. maybe she's getting ready to get, you know, she's trying to fatten herself up to almost like hide. Yeah. And I was thinking when you were speaking about, you know, um, being in captivity and then, you know, this route that hadn't existed or had existed, but doesn't, and they, you don't know where they're going to go. It's almost like, I, I just find the instinct of animals absolutely incredible. Just watching this little hedgehog that's in my living room and that we're desperately trying not to shout around, but like, um, and just seeing how she just is doing the things she would do anyway, but she's not in a natural setting. And then the yeah. stalks doing what, you know, I just, it's just incredible. Yeah, it is absolutely amazing just to, you know, those instincts are so hardwired into mm -hmm. their their being that it just comes second nature to them they don't even think about it and you know these these juvenile storks have been bred in captivity from zoo parents you know they've never been in the you know the parents haven't been in the wild since they were young and were injured so you know it's not like the parents are showing them the migratory routes they've just got this you know okay the food's getting less so it's getting cold let's just let's, let's go yeah. yeah let's go somewhere warmer <laughs> um and that's it they go and yeah your young hedgehog she will do everything as she should do even though she's you know being kept up over the winter because she's too mm -hmm. small so um yeah and she'll be fine once she gets released again it's amazing how resilient animals are i always think mm -hmm. that i think as humans we're we're a bit it's soft sometimes <laughs> and you know comfortable I think yeah yeah exactly I think so animals are you know they don't show pain until it is absolutely yeah. 
really awful. Um, you know, they keep going, they push through, um, you know, animals that have had to have a leg amputated just get back up and they carry on. Um, they don't kind of have all those preconceptions of, oh, this is going to hurt or, you know, oh, I can't possibly do that. Mm. Um, they just get on with it. Yeah. Which I've, I've always found fascinating. I think they're, they're so amazing, really. So what is it that keeps you kind of motivated? What is it that helps you to rest so that you can continue with what you're doing? Because you talked earlier about, you know, getting kind of burnt out and the, the toll that working in the zoo took on your mental health. What is there anything that you time and time again go back to? Are there kind of new things you found as you've kind of got older and... Yeah, I think I think one of the main things is actually learning to listen to my body and mm. knowing when I'm heading towards needing that time to just go, do you know what? Mm. I need a day off and I need to sit in front of the telly and do nothing or yeah. I need to go for a walk or it's time to get the paints out or get the, the needle and thread out. Mm. Um, and listening to your body is is, again, something that we're not very good at doing. We just keep we keep going we push through you know you've got to go to work every day you've got to pay the bills um and it's you know there are a lot of stresses for us these days and I think you know especially this year <laughs> I think it's proven to everyone that that time outdoors and in nature even if it's your back garden um, mm-hmm. or even filling your house with houseplants as oh, my yes. par- partner is currently doing <laughs> I, yeah I'm gonna take the, the card away from <laughs> um, the house is absolutely the bathroom's like a jungle um <laughs> but there is something about having all that greenery around you um but yeah I think actually taking notice um a couple of years ago I've, again actually it was quite poorly but I had Lyme's disease um, oh, wow. and uh, after getting a tick from Scotland on holiday in November um which was crazy and you know I take people out for walks and I tell them all the time to check themselves for ticks and it was November and I just didn't think about it um and then ended up with post-viral fatigue syndrome and seeing five or six different doctors who didn't know what to do with me Mm. so I started to you know I, I I changed my diet I changed my exercise and um, I started having regular acupressure um, things like that and and it all really really helped so that is definitely one of the things that I I kind of fall back on it's like have I been stressed out yes has that meant that I've been eating really badly yeah probably so time to sort of make sure that I'm eating better and getting the rest that I need and I think one of the really big things is learning to say no to people if you just seriously don't have time um I I was always a yes person always a yes person I like to make other people happy and um you know especially going through the period of being self-employed you kind of have to say yes to stuff because you don't know when it's going to come around again um but yeah learning to manage my own time and say do you know what no maybe not today but perhaps next week so that was my first it's not an outright no but um yeah just sort of kind of saying actually not right now yeah which makes a massive difference as well to be honest yeah and and it just yeah it just has a knock-on effect then doesn't it because you can do more 
once you've had that downtime. Yeah, yeah. I think it was getting to that point where I was so wiped out that I couldn't even do the things that I liked to do mm. because I was too exhausted. And it's just recognizing that that's not good for anybody um, and that nobody can do everything. So it's okay to say no every now and then. And it's okay to have a day where you do absolutely nothing yeah. and, and just take the chill out time. <laughs> Put on the Netflix. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's so hard. This time of the year is, you know, like I finish work and it's dark. Um, yeah. and it's easy to get into that right work's finished I'll go from my laptop screen to the telly yes. screen yeah um but yeah we've we've started to kind of we've made our work days longer by taking longer off at lunchtime so we get uh-huh. daylight time yeah and I think working from home I think quite a lot of people actually have realized that working from home can be good for you if you do yeah. it right um yeah. I was lucky that I had about a year's worth of working at home before lockdown started. So I kind of already got into that, you know, you just take an extra time off here and add it on later or, you know, it's much more flexible. Um, Mm -hmm. And I love it. I don't think you have to go back to working in an office full time. I like being self-employed and being able to be flexible and, you know, um, so yeah. And setting those like things, I've been trying to go for a run or a bike ride every morning before I work, if I can, if I don't yeah. have things going on. Yeah, just having those like um, routines. Yeah. Just, it's good for the mind, I think, to have, this is what's happening now, this is what's happening now, especially in a year when so much has been unclear. Yeah. Having that ability. And like you say, the daylight, now it's so dark. I mean, today, I don't, I'm not even sure the sun came up because it's been raining all day. Yeah, I've had the lights on in the house yeah. all day long. It has Same. felt like nighttime all day. It's been absolutely horrible out there. <laughs> it's started raining here now, actually. Um, so just to kind of, um, the kind of last few questions, um, I really like to ask people what their hope for the future is. It's a really, it's a really tough one, but yeah. I mean, hope for, fu- hope for the future is um, more people realizing that nature is good for them and that it's needed and that we need to take care of it to be able to survive ourselves Mm -hmm. and you know just that reconnection I think but also working to kind of connect all of our habitats and stuff up together I think there are so many amazing people out there and I mean I look at my Instagram and there are so many youngsters Mm -hmm. it makes me sound old but there are so many people out there I look at you know 15 16 year olds I follow on Instagram and I just think I was nowhere near that switched on at that age (laughs) definitely not as articulate um and I just think that they are probably the hope for our future um Mm -hmm. they're on the right path and they're doing the right stuff and I feel like the tide's turning, but I don't know whether that's just because I'm in my own little conservation ecology bubble yeah. and we all post the same stuff. Yeah. Um, but it seems like it's becoming more known. And I think COVID has, you know, got to find a silver lining somewhere along, <laughs> along the year that we've had. But yeah. I think that has woken a lot of people up to it. Mm. Um, yeah. Whether it sticks or not, it's another matter. But I think, yeah, I think it's been a good year for people realizing actually that things aren't as good as they thought they were and that we need to do something about it that's so true I think there's more people realizing 
that they can do something to help as well and yeah. that they can do something to support the people that can't yeah that don't have that access yeah I feel like there's yeah. been a real kind of um wake up in that sense as well yeah there's been a real shift in thinking even yeah. people you know changing energy suppliers or mm. you know, walking to the shops rather than driving to the shops and um you know using less plastic and shopping local and yeah. you know being local and supporting local businesses that that sense of community has been much more important i think this year and it's kind of re-established that actually you know what these little local businesses have really looked after us <laughs> during this really difficult year let's look after them and um do some good for the planet at the same time yeah absolutely um and what has your journey taught you that you would like to pass on to others um i think the main lesson that my journey's taught me is to just go with it <laughs> everything is it happens as it's meant to happen it sounds really corny <laughs> but i feel like if you just you know take the right take the decision that you feel is right at the time and it you'll end up where you want to be mm. definitely it's one of the things I always tell people if they ask, you know, they're asking about getting into mm. being a zookeeper or getting into conservation, what can I do? And it's, you know, get out there as much as you can, enjoy it as well. Um, and don't be worried if you're not where you want to be, because you will end up there. It just sometimes takes a little while, but everything is a good experience. Yeah. Positive or negative, it's a good experience. <laughs> it will teach you a lesson somewhere along the line. I feel like conservation is so much about experience because you can't walk in, you know, learning about the animals and the, the seasons. And yeah. I think that's why I love what ecologists and, and um, conservationists do is that there's this depth, this real depth of knowledge and understanding of how the natural world works, even if it's only one section of the natural world. But then yeah. there is no one section of the natural world, really. It's all there? connected somewhere. Yeah. It is all connected. And I think one of the things and that I've learned from others and observing others in the same industry is that everyone is so passionate about it. And that is why they know so much, because mm -hmm. you're so passionate. You want to learn about it and you want to be immersed in it. But because of all of that, you're very good at getting that across to other people because your passion always comes through and you know you've only got to look at the you know everyone on instagram with mm. all their fantastic posts that they do about you know leaf mines and candy <laughs> and all that kind of stuff and you can just feel the passion coming out of the tech um and that's why they know so much about it but mm. i don't think you can work in this industry if you haven't got that passion it gets to a point where i think it would wear you down if you didn't have that passion to keep driving you forward I feel like there's so many links with teaching here, but <laughs> it probably things. is. So much and a lot of it, I mean, there's so much public engagement yeah. and you know, trying you know, teaching other people about it that it's again it's linked, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but even just about like wanting to do more and, and think I don't know, just so much of what you've said throughout this past like hour, I've been thinking, oh my god, that's exactly like when I was teaching. That's exactly <laughs> Yeah, it, and exactly. I mean you wouldn't be a teacher if you didn't feel passionate about teaching yeah. kids or you know, people about everything. Um, yeah. and yeah, wanting to do as much as you possibly can with perhaps out without all the resources that you need. 
Um, this has just been really fascinating and wonderful and just, I'm, I, I, say, I say I'm in awe of what people do a lot, but I, I, in terms of the impact of what you're doing and everything that it's taken for, to get everything set up, it's, it really is mind blowing. Um, the, yeah, the, the, the kind of enormity of it. If we, you know, if we really think about it, it's really big. And yeah. so it's been an absolute, like my pleasure to have you talk and you're going to be the last episode of the year um in terms of like conversations so yeah and i feel like I'm, <laughs> we're going out with a bit of a, a bit of a bang having you oh thank you i um, really loved it it's been such a lovely chat it's been really oh, nice good. thank you thanks for having me on um so before we go can you tell people where they can find you how they can find out more about the white stalk project and yeah all of that stuff so you can find me myself on uh, instagram and twitter at lucy in the wild and you can follow the white stalk project uh, at project stalk on twitter and you can have a look at our website which is www.whitestalkproject.org and i keep all of that updated with news stories and up-to-date posts about where all of our stalks are and I highly recommend people looking at your Instagram and like when you put the maps up of where they are. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm thinking about starting a White Stalk Project Instagram page. <laughs> so oh, that'd I be might amazing. Be at some point. But um, yeah, my, my personal one kind of gets lots of the stalk stuff on me. <laughs> <Lots of> stalk <laughs> it's stuff. exciting not to share the maps and stuff. <laughs> Wasn't that so inspiring? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. In the meditation and writing prompt that follows this episode, we'll be taking inspiration from the storks and creating a piece guided by their journey. As always, I'm sending you lots of love. Happy writing, and I'll speak to you soon.